All righty, folks. Welcome to the podcast. Big day today. We have our first interview ever. Couple points of interest before we begin. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. Hot, hot. As you know, I'm a teacher. Today's classes were dismissed early due to the heat. It was brutal in there, folks. But true to form, I've got a hot cup of coffee in hand because that's how we do. Now, previously on last week's episode, I changed the name of the podcast. Changing it back again, folks. A lot, a lot of negative feedback for the podcast name Drunk on Coffee. You're not drunk. It's not It's not really about coffee. The coffee thing's played out. But And you know what? Uh, all right. I hear you, and I'm going to stay with the brand. Stay on brand. Back to the Brian Francis podcast. My apologies for that fling. I will stay consistent from now on. Uh, it's like when a show is fading and you sort of throw in a new character. I felt I had to cause some controversy. It's, it was my jump the shark moment, admittedly. But maybe that episode will be worth a lot of money someday. The one and only Drunk on Coffee podcast. I don't know much about marketing, but I know this. To get an audience, you got to keep changing the website and keep changing the name. That's the one way to get a consistent audience. Isn't that right? <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So without further ado, uh, the first guest, my first guest is Rick Topper. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Rick Topper is a father of four, a teacher in the classroom for how many years? 30. 30 years. He's been in the corporate world. He is one of the smartest guys I know. He's a, a furniture maker, a woodworker, a painter. Um, my former department head in the English department where I taught and my very good friend. So I want to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Rick Topper. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. All right. Take a tug of that coffee. So you said you were in the classroom 30 years, but recently retired. What have you been up to? What's on your mind? Um, a couple things. Yeah. Um, I retired in June and I spent a lot of time in the summertime trying to get all the paperwork together. So that was that's just, just a wonderful thing to do. Um, I'm trying to figure out what kind of old man I want to be. <laughs> that's really my main job right now. What type of old men are there? Well, there's the kind that get off my lawn type. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I've tried that. It doesn't work because our lawn's not very – I mean, people look at us like, why, why get off this lawn? <laughs> so I'm not that kind of a guy. Okay. I'm, you know, there's the guy that sits on the porch and um, – Make sure that his car is parked exactly where it should be in front on the curb, exactly yes. <laughs> far enough away from the driveway. And I'm sort of have to confess being a little bit of that guy. <laughs> so you periodically glance out of the window to see if someone's encroaching in your spot. And yes, and if, possibly, <laughs> and if someone has moved, yeah, I, I might move the truck up closer. I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's crossed the thoughts crossed my mind. All right, all There's, right. Um, These are noble pursuits. Yeah. Then there's the kind of the kind of guy that I think tries to pretend he's not old. Okay. You know, and I'm sort of leaning that way. I think I'm leaning that way. I'm trying to pretend I'm not old. But my children, like, get in the way. My kids get Uh, in the way. Yes. Like, unfortunately, we've kind of raised them to be kind of empathetic. 
Okay. So now I'm at this age. I'll be 67 for your for your viewers this mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you don't have viewers, do you? Well, not yet. Not yet. Can you see this? I've made that similar mistake. Yes. I think we both think we should be on a Pretty TV much. show. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, my kid, my boys, I have two boys and two girls, and the boys are very direct. I mean, they'll okay. just say, like, we're moving something. They'll say, you okay? You want to stop? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'll say, no, yeah. I don't want to stop. Yeah. Like we move a piano, uh, he takes the heavy end with the bass notes. I take the, I take the other end. Um, my uh, daughters, they're much more circumspect, so they'll just kind of talk to my wife and will say, "Is that okay? Mm. Is that okay?" Mm. And um, you know that. So you know, I, I want to be the guy who kind of does not go gentle into that good night. Just pretends he's thirty-five years old forever. That's kind of where I am. <laughs> I think that's the way to go. Um, that is. The thing with old guys and moving stuff, they yeah. always lie and say, it's not heavy, it's awkward. Well, it's, it, <laughs> most things are awkward. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> awkward. I, You'll see I as you're part of that. this podcast. As you get older, <laughs> things get more awkward by it's, the moment. It's a lie. There's a heavy end and a light end to a piano? The heavy end has the bass notes. Really? No, it's not true at all. I just made that up. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought maybe the strings were thicker. All right, no, so you're no. trying to but figure we, out. <laughs> we just move anything you move. It's like, okay, Dad, you all right? Yeah. Okay, shut yeah. up. I'm all right. Because there's nothing uglier than like an old guy like tripping or going down. It takes like 10 minutes for a guy your size to fall. I know. And, and when I get too tired, that. I pretend I just have to go into the bathroom. You know, mm. so I go in and they probably think it's my prostate, but it's, <laughs> I'm just in there kind of catching my breath. Okay. And, you know, so I make some noise. I flush the toilet. I come out and go, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's go. And they're thinking, ah, oh, poor guy's prostate. <laughs> well, so it's more noble to have a prostate condition than just to be old. I like don't know. Nothing's noble. In your skin. <laughs> Nothing at all is noble. That's the problem. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah. That is bizarre. Yeah. Maybe I'll just fade away. I don't know. <sighs> no, I'll you, just do that. Yeah. Well, you could feed pigeons at the park. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a number number of opportunities. So you're out of the classroom. I mean, do you miss it at all? That's three Very years much. of your life. Yeah, I miss it. I miss it a whole lot. And you said out of the classroom. That's exactly what I miss. I miss the classroom. I miss being with the kids. I miss talking to them because they're just. I mean, it's just very very cool to be able to have that have that um, have that honor to, or have that you know privilege to be able to sit down with a bunch of kids you like and talk to them for whatever, 180, 190 days a year. I mean, that's really something nice. The other parts of it, I mean, I miss dearly. I mean, my, my uh, colleagues, you know, I miss sure. you know, hanging sure. with them, talking to them. Yeah. Um, I pretty much had it by the time I left with, um, with grading papers, definitely. Yeah. Okay. That was, that was just becoming a, a grind. And also just administratively, it was time to, time to kind of call that, call that a day. And I thought if I'm not going to do it this year, I'll do it next year. If not next year, the next year. But, I didn't see what I would be gaining by staying another year or so. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm getting also to watch uh, my grandson for two days a week. So instead of teaching Euripides, I'm doing, I think right now we're in the middle of Brown Bear, Brown Bear, uh, what do you see? <laughs> and if you're interested, he sees a red bird. He does. He does. All yeah. right. Yeah. All right. And then it goes on from there. The red bird sees a yellow duck and it just goes on. It's archetypal storytelling, yeah. really. The big reveal, by the way, if you're six months old. Is the purple yeah. the purple cat? The purple cat is a is a no it's a no fail. I mean, okay, always gets a big response. All right, yeah, hopefully, so. our listeners that haven't read that there were no spoil alerts uh, there. Mm-mm. 
Well, uh, you know, I've watched you teach. Uh, you've taught me how to teach, and uh, I've seen some of your classes, and they're just magical. You have a really nice rapport with students where it's edgy, it's funny, it's uh, everything what I think education should be. Um, so I had back to school this week, and I met some of the new teachers. I'm wondering, like, what, what messages would you have for this new crop of teachers or any any feelings about education in the general sense? Yeah. Um, I think when I was young, I mean, people said when I was, like, I was a kid in my first gig teaching uh, right out of, of college, uh, people said, you know, don't smile about Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Like, be a tough guy, you know. And, yeah. And, and you know, don't, don't smile till Christmas. That is a phrase you hear a lot in yeah. education. Yeah, <laughs> and that was sort of like the way to kind of let people know you were serious. Yeah, and I never, I never developed like a teacher persona. I was just, gotcha. I was just me. I just walked in and like, you know, I never tried to change anything. I was just like the, the me mm-hmm. you saw at home, or the me you saw anywhere else was the me you saw in the classroom, because I never saw any percentage of that, and I never saw any percentage in kind of like trying to manipulate kids that way. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. thought, well, let me talk to let me talk to them the way I am and um, try and figure out what's on their minds, try and figure out what matters to them. Um, there's a story I told, I tell my kid, I told my kids, um, I think it was, um, oh, geez, well, I'm, it might have been Count Basie, I'm not sure. I'm getting old. So you're going to have to give me all sorts of latitude here, Brian. <laughs> But I think it was Count Beige, Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington. Okay. I knew it was some All royalty. Right. Some, some big bank account or a yeah. Duke. I never Count realized yeah. that both of them were named at the royalty. It account. was Duke Ellington. And um, it might, the story might be apocryphal, but he um, had a band member, a guitarist, who played a, they were playing a gig, and they played a song, this guy, you know, it's a jazz thing. So he played his, his riff on a Monday night, played the same riff on Tuesday night, and Duke Ellington fired him. And he said, this is, you know, this is jazz. He said, you know, you don't repeat yourself. Hmm. And that's the mistake I made as a kid when I was in the classroom. Like if I saw something that worked, say, first period, yeah, I'd, I'd repeat it, fourth period. <laughs> okay. I'd say, you know, this is going to work. I killed first period. It's going to happen <laughs> again fourth period. And it never did. I mean, it just dropped. And I always blamed the kids. I thought, what's wrong with you people? This is funny stuff. This is good stuff. <laughs> yeah. this, don't you hear me being... Well, no. Uh, don't you hear yeah. me? Yeah, Being and amazing. it never worked. And then I thought, you idiot. Yeah. You know, I mean, what you can't do is, and that's one of the things I have sort of. I never, I don't do well. Nobody's going to fire me anymore. I never did lesson plans. Okay. I never did lesson plans. Okay. I had a couple of points that I wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. I went in, I read the room, and to me, teaching is kind of like jazz. You just read a room. You have a theme. You have a key that you want the the classroom to kind of run in. And you go from there. And you don't repeat yourself. And whatever direction it goes, it goes. I've had that self same experience, bombing when you try to do the same thing twice. And I think you've even been in the room and I thought, should I say this again? Or, yeah. You know, and you just, you can't recreate the moment sometimes. You really can't. You really can't. You know? When it's happening, it's purely happening. And that's, that's the thing about teaching. It's, I think anyway, it's one of the few places on earth that is a completely in the hands of a good in a good classroom, mm-hmm. where it's unrehearsed and unrepeatable, mm-hmm. and when it's gone, it's gone. It's like in the way it's like stand up, which you're also familiar with. It's like 
there's this thing that's going to happen once and it's either going to happen or it's not, but it's gone forever then. And there's something to me kind of precious about that. And don't you feel the direction of education is going in the opposite vein that we're trying to uh, departmentalize it, make it a commodity, make it something that can be quantifiable and repeatable? Yeah, yeah. And I think that to the extent that it goes there, to the extent that that movement is successful, that will be, I mean, that will strangle anything that's good in education. The fact that Brian Francis is going to somehow have to do what I do or that I'm going to have to somehow do what you do, or worse yet, both of us have to follow something, some third thing mm-hmm. would be mm-hmm. a disaster because, you know, I've been, as you said, I've been in your classroom too and I've seen what you do and it's unrepeatable. I mean, what you do, it happens. I mean, lightning strikes, lightning doesn't strike, but it's wonderful and then it's over. And to me... I mean, in a, in, a, in a kind of a time where everything is sort of able to be captured and replayed, there's something unique about this now. I'd agree. I'd agree. And I guess the lesson to take away is if you really want to connect with today's generation, play them Duke Ellington. The kids are really into Duke the Ellington. Kids love Duke Ellington. Too. Yeah, Duke Ellington, yeah. Migos, anything yeah. pre-World War II big band. I, I, oh, yeah, yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. Some of their slower music I think the kids would love very, very much. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, despite who we are and, and, and our age, uh, I, I've seen you find connections with multiple generations you find those connections um yeah i mean part of it is staying up a little bit on what's happening in social media and stuff like that which i kind of try to do but part of it is just understanding that at least in my own opinion we gave them a really really raw deal and i think it's incumbent on my generation what's left of it to uh own up to that you know, to let them know exactly what we've done. What do you mean by a raw deal? Well, I mean, I'll take two things. One, I mean, they're both pretty darn major. The one is, of course, the climate. You know, I mean, we knew. I mean, we knew. I mean, I'm, you know, back in the 60s, we knew what was happening, and we ignored it. And now we're going we're gonna to exit, after having gotten skimmed the cream, we're going to exit the stage and leave our children and grandchildren, you know, pick up the pieces. And uh, the second point, you know, we can talk about both these if you want, but the second point has to do with um, college debt. I mean, we're taking kids, and, you know, I, I, you know, I went to, you know, a fairly good school, and, you know, the, the tuition there was um, $3,000 a year. And... That was half of that was canceled, like well, because I had gotten some some help. But then when I started teaching, ten percent of it a year was canceled because we had something called defense national defense student loans programs, which canceled most of my debt. Kids today they, they graduate with a quarter million dollars in debt, and they're indentured servants. I mean, from the day they walk from the day they get their diploma, and there's no reason we have to treat kids as a profit center. I mean, there's no reason on earth we have to do that, and yet it serves our interest to do it, so we do it, and we don't think twice about it. I mean, that's just two of the many things I think that our, our generation has done to uh, to harm this generation. I was talking about college. I think you're right. 
and so much so. And I was talking about college debt last week, and it does feel like you take that first step into the world, and boom, right into a trap. Yeah. It's like I worked for Terminex, and I'll never forget the image of this insect giving birth right into a trap. All the babies oh went God. into this glue trap. And I oh thought in some cool. way that feels like what we're setting these kids up for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and I'm, I just say, I mean, we know the midterms are coming up, midterm elections are coming up. And, I mean, I, I felt like, you know, the village idiot sometimes in front of the classroom. But I just would kept, I kept saying – you have to vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody simply has to vote. I don't care who you vote for. I mean, that's, that's your. It's not my. You know, that's not my business. But you have to vote, and you have to take you know a six pack of your friends along to vote as well, because if you do that, people will start paying attention to you. If you don't, then you know I'm going to run this. My, my generation is going to run the table. You know, again. It, it's a good point, and it. It asks the question, I wonder if in your career or if people have asked you, like, why is your English class so political? Why, uh, you know, shouldn't you be teaching vowels and consonants and language arts? And where is this place for politics in English? Well, you know, the vowels and consonants kind of thing, I think that if you don't get that by the time you're in eighth grade, yeah, me t- doing it one more time is not going to help you. So, I mean, that ship sailed by the time kids have gotten to be 11th or 12th grade. I mean, and I can't think of anything more soul-crushing than dealing with gerunds and participles and, and, you know, indirect objects. I mean, my God, I mean, I've never, I mean, you know, to be able to use the language with some sort of facility does not require that you, you have that. I had it because I went to a, gra- I went to a Catholic grammar school. You know, I see the value of it, but it's not something that, I'm, you know, by the time I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, that was done. I think once you start talking about ideas, you know, once you start, you know, it, which is what I think a good English class is, I mean, you're kind of reading other people's experiences. You're kind of vicariously uh, experiencing their own lives. I don't see how that can't be political. And by that, I don't mean that. I'm out there trying to um, trying to foist some social democratic you know worldview on them, but I certainly am pointing out you know uh, analogies to today's world, you know because I don't think that I'm doing my job if I don't. I think you know the ability to make connections uh, between disparate things or things that that aren't necessarily obviously connected. I think that's the heart and soul of education. But does public education force this uh, kind of liberal socialist philosophy? Uh, and I've seen your classroom at work, and I know you are not hammering a, a political party or a point that people should believe in. But I've seen less skilled people in the classroom that are sort of just echoing the liberal arts Millersville degree that they received. And I, I worry if it's a teacher that isn't as nuanced, that the sort of liberal educator response to every problem is the knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Do they ever receive sort of the counter-argument? I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say whether or not they get the counter. I mean, I know that there tend to be – I think teaching tends to attract people at least in the public school system, 
you know, who are more liberal. I wouldn't, I mean, I also taught at a Catholic school. I taught at LaSalle when I was a kid. And we had a, a very fair share of conservative, both religiously conservative and socially conservative people. Um, I do take your point about the kind of hackneyed uh, kind of uh, reflexive liberal, liberalism, you know, where you're just kind of uh, echoing a party line. And to me, I mean, everything in a classroom should be attackable. In other words, it's like, I mean, to me, you know, anything I say, you should hold me accountable for. And if I can't explain it, if I can't talk about it, if I can't relate it to your life, then you don't, you don't have to listen to me. I mean, you shouldn't have to, to kind of like pay, pay heed. I mean, so any kind of reflex kind of uh, politics, whether it's liberal or conservative, I think doesn't belong. It doesn't belong. I think those kinds of observations have to grow organically out of real-world situations where you look at a situation that's occurring uh, either from a story or from a connection to a story to what's actually happening in the world. And then, you know, you kind of, you, you kind of talk about it that way and give breathing room to people who have other points of view and let those things air out and let people kind of test them. I mean, to me, it's all, it's all Darwin. I mean, it's like the best arguments will survive. You know, if they don't, if they don't survive, if it's a, whether it's a work, you know, a, a novel or whatever, uh, if it doesn't survive, then it doesn't deserve to. It's a, um, it's something to think about. I've seen teachers teach in such a way that they, it's guess what I'm thinking. Guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Guess what I'm thinking. And there isn't that space provided uh, for alternate viewpoints. But that yeah. is something that you clearly have provided over your long career. And I know that because I see te- students come back and thank you for that very thing. But I've fallen into that. Okay. You know, I have absolutely fallen into that. And that's what I know I'm screwing up. And, you know, what I've found, again, out, I probably out of practice or, or uh, trial and error, is that I just admit it. Okay. I'll just say, oh, my God, look what we're doing here. <laughs> we're, we're playing, you know, guess what's on my mind. And I'd make fun of, like, like, like what a rotten teacher I am to be doing that. <laughs> but isn't that the world to them when you admit yeah, that you make absolutely. a mistake? Yeah, this yeah. moment of humanity. Yeah. You, you go so much uh, further. Yeah when you can admit that you're fallible. Yeah, when things go bad and you just stop in the middle of a class and you say, is anybody here as bored as I am? <laughs> and when the hands go up, I mean, you just laugh and you just say, okay, stop, let's just do something else, you know, and we'll yep. go somewhere else, you know. I mean, sometimes I'll get, you know, I would get like really wrapped up in an idea and I'm thinking halfway through I get this sinking feeling that I'm the only one that's like wrapped up in this idea. Okay. And at that point you just have to cut bait. I mean, you can't you can't just go with a chat. And when you cut bait, you turn a lose into a win. I mean, it's just that you know, and that's really sweet when that happens. You mentioned previously teaching at a private uh, school and your Catholic schooling, where you learned your grasp of grammar. Um, in Pennsylvania, we've been rocked recently by more. Uh, Priests, allegations of priests, um, I don't even know how to phrase it, uh, scandalous and horrific behavior. And I know you were moved by these stories uh, that are coming out of Pennsylvania and across the country, uh, moved so to write 
a letter to the editor to the New York Times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which published your letter, and that is not an easy feat, my friend. So congratulations yeah, on getting a, your work out there. I had a teacher back in high school who said if you get a letter published by the Inquirer, you get an A for the quarter. Okay. And if you get one published by the New York Times, you get an A for the year. So I'm trying to get in touch with him now that I have my, my, my letter <laughs> and see if I can change my grade. But I don't know. Uh, a, sure. for yeah. a for the year. A for the year. I'm going to read this uh, short letter now, and then I want to talk a little bit about what motivated you to write this and uh, sure. how, how you feel about uh, the Catholic Church today. It's called A Truth Commission on Clerical Abuse. This was published on August 20th. In the wake of the ecclesiastical mea culpa surrounding last week's Pennsylvania clerical abuse report, we've yet to hear a realistic plan of action to restore the world-shattered confidence in the Roman Catholic Church. Taking a cue from Desmond Tutu and post-apartheid South Africa, I propose a church-wide program of truth and reconciliation commissions. These would operate on a parish level and be run by the laity. All clergy active in a given parish would answer, under oath and on camera, questions regarding his level of participation or knowledge of the child abuse scandal. The results wouldn't vanish into a secret archive. They'd be indexed and archived on social media, available to everyone worldwide. We know the names of some abusers and the names of some who hid abusers' crimes. We need to hear from, what should we call them? The unindicted co-conspirators, the priests who knew what was going on down the rectory hall, in their brother priest bedrooms, in the corner of the sacristy after mass. This silent majority allowed this culture to fester and thrive. Everyone has to come clean. Only then can we begin to heal as a church. Some powerful words, Rick. Thanks. What, what inspired you to write this? Um, the fact that, you know, this is the second go-round in Pennsylvania for this, this bomb has exploded twice now, first in Philadelphia, uh, maybe, I don't know, 2002 or somewhere like that, and now just recently um, in the other six, you know, uh, dioceses, and um, we, we're, we've gone nowhere. I mean, we're still doing the same thing. We're still asking the same quote-unquote hard questions about what should, what should happen. And somehow it seems like it's still being left up to the um, to the criminals and those who kind of uh, aided and abetted their crimes to figure out a response. And I don't think that should happen. I, I you know, and, and what what boils what, what it comes down to is there's this misconception, at least in my opinion, that somehow it's their church, you know, and. Last I looked, they were supposed to be the servants of the people. It's not their church. It's our church. And I think we have to run the show on this one. And, you know, this is just step one, what I'm talking about here. But this idea that, I mean, I remember there's a, a story that uh, when Troy Eisenhower, right, right after uh, D-Day, when he was liberating the death camps in 1945 in Germany, he would sometimes take the um, inhabitants of surrounding towns and at gunpoint forced them through the camps to see what was happening while they looked the other way. And, you know, his point was that you don't get 
to look the other way. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we cleared the church or, if, you know, the church were cleared of every abuser, you know, we still wouldn't, that, that wouldn't be enough because you still had all the people who, with their silence, allowed this to happen, you know, and who are just kind of skating out the side door and not, not being held accountable. So to me, everybody has to answer up. Everybody has to answer up. And, you know, I would go a lot farther than that, but, you know, that's, I think this is step one. Um, I think it's a great proposal, and I think that you're right. People should be held accountable for this, and there should be jail time and publicly expo- exposed uh, as to who has done what. But, you know, I even wonder, like, a- after these people pay for their crimes, and hopefully they do, like, what? How can you ever support this church again? How, how can you like? I, I view it as a parent now. It's like yeah, I don't I think I could send my kids to Catholic school. It would yeah. be the same as not using a car seat or smoking cigarettes around them. It's like willingly putting them in the path of danger. Yeah, and you're speaking from a different generation from from mine. And there's not a thing you're saying I would disagree with. Uh, uh, you know, but from my generation, you know. We grew up with, uh, I mean, and it's ingrained. I mean, it's a hard thing to let go of. And I know people are saying, well, you just have to cut it loose. You have to let go. You know, I know that you and I are better than our worst moments. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in the church. I think it's been betrayed by its hierarchy. And, you know, if I were, if I were, if I could wave a wand, you know, I would rid the church of its entire hierarchy and back in the early church, the laity, um, you know, they appointed, they elected their own bishops. And I would say that's where we should go. And, but again, Brian, I don't have an answer for this. I mean, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I, I got nothing to say about that. I can't argue that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, there's nothing to, there's no indication that, that they've learned a lesson. None. You know, I, I'll do, well, no, there's none. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so... I can't, uh, I can't argue that. And again, then the follow-up question is like, well, then what about the entire thing, the entire ball of wax, not just Catholic school, but the Catholic Church? Sure. And I can't answer sure. that either. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what to say about that. You know, you mentioned Darwin earlier. Yeah. Is this a time where this thing dies? Maybe. I mean, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, it's not going to die a clean and easy death because, you know, religion is something that, yeah, I know it's, I think there's a certain facile response to religion where people just all of a sudden say, well, you can be your own, you know, this and that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, maybe you can, but maybe that's also like a remarkably shallow response to some something as profound as religion, which is by definition kind of a communal-based thing, a communal way of trying to make sense of the world. And, you know, you can't just wipe away. But, you know, a, a, you know, a, a religion of faith has a billion, 0.2, 1.2 billion, whatever, people in it. But Darwin is right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this thing dies. I mean, right now, I mean, there are no priests. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, there are no priests. And that's probably a good thing, considering the priests that we've had. Sure. You know, so sure. maybe it dies that death. I don't know. I mean, it's going to change radically. I mean, I probably won't be here, but when you're my age, if there is a church... It's going to look way different. It's going to have to. So anyway, I don't know. 
Yeah, I uh, I can't envision it either. Either I know this uh, scandal has hit close to home with uh, some areas and where both of us grew up, and yeah, these priests right. were, you know, were part of our community. So it's, uh, yeah, I know it. older brothers that have been affected, kids yeah. on soccer team that I played with. Like this is a yeah. real story. Two of the two of the priests that were named in the Philadelphia diocese actually took me and my friends out as older boys on trips. Jeez. And it was kind of like it was there to happen. But it seems to be the psychology of it is they would prey on kids who's where they found weakness. Where mm-hmm. they found, not in the child, but in the home. If there gotcha. was a home that was sort gotcha. of like not necessarily on a firm foundation, you know, then they would then they would prey on that. And fortunately I escaped that, you know, but but, you know, there before the grace of God. Well, if it did go the way of Darwin, I wouldn't shed a tear. Yeah, yeah, and I get that. I absolutely get that. Um, you know, you you do bring politics into classroom. You also taught a, a digital culture course. Uh, any thoughts on what that course was like? Sometimes I joke that Rick was the youngest old guy in the room, that he was more in tune with Twitter and Facebook and so many social media happenings than the rest of his colleagues, maybe half his age. So what was that course like and where do you see technology going? I th- Well, what the course was, was a way of, of, I mean, the way I would sell the course would say that we're all surfing this kind of digital wave and it's cool as hell. I mean, it looks wonderful, but nobody seems to be looking at the wave. We're just kind of looking at where it's taking us and seeing the view from up on top of the wave. But nobody's looking at like what's actually happening underneath us. And that's what I wanted to do. And I, I labeled the course kind of a study in unintended consequences. And, you know, I, you know, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think that um, it's as big as Gutenberg and the printing press. And it's changing everything in ways that we don't understand. I mean, right now I'm looking at an article. I'm, I, geez, I don't know if it's Pakistan or today's New York Times on the headline. Um it, it's like Facebook is one of the one of the weapons that they're using, like in street to street fighting. It's like you know, it's the Facebook posts which let people know, begin to kind of strategize where they have to be in this block by block fighting that's occurring okay. in this particular okay. area. I mean, that's just one thing, but but you know, it's shaping politics uh, as we know with the Trump presidency. It's facing it's shaping um, labor. You know, yesterday was Labor Day. It's shaping sure. the, the whole gig economy. All yeah. that's a function of of, um, of social media, and and you know if we just keep thinking like, my God, look, the next the next big thing is three D. You know, kind of you know experiences and immersive gaming experiences, and so if that's all we're looking at, we're missing everything, because there are people who are not necessarily our friends who are designing things that won't that won't necessarily be in our interests. That, that we cannot seem to get away from. You mentioned the gig economy and Labor Day. Uh, for you podcast fans, you know there's an ongoing segment in which Brian talks to Uber drivers. Uh, and I haven't used Uber many times and finding it efficient, helpful, uh, and safe. Um, but you have a different spin on Uber. What What's your take on it? Because we've discussed this before. Yeah. With respect to Uber and and the apps that allow you to bring somebody in to, you know, hang a cabinet or to, you know, do a little bit of plumbing or whatever in your house, 
with an you know with lift and things like that, you know it's kind of a race to the bottom in terms of in terms of uh, economics. Um, it's it's the Walmart economy, the Walmart kind of model brought to the internet, where the lowest price always wins, and whatever I can do to shave money off of that, me as a consumer, if I can get a cheaper ride, you know, home from a bar at nighttime or whatever, that's where I'm going to go for it. And what I'm doing is I'm destroying entire industries by doing this because, you know, an Uber driver, you know, once he pays for his own auto insurance, once he pays for his own gas, once he pays for his own upkeep on his car, he's making maybe six bucks an hour. You know, well, that's not enough to live. Now, Yellow Cab is... It's a mess. It's a disaster. You can't get a cab. It's expensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, you know, how do you how do you justify kind of paying somebody the equivalent of six dollars an hour to drive you home when you're drunk from a bar to take you somewhere else? You know, I'm not sure. It's I, I think we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. We don't even know it. You know, because. You know, that, that same model can be applied to education, for example. This is one teacher talking to another. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, why can't I hire one Brian Smith, tape his classes? Francis. Yes. <laughs> tape my classes. Tape, yeah, record yeah. your classes yeah. and then play them for everybody. It'd be cheaper. Uh-huh. I mean, we drive down the cost of education. Yeah. You know, Brian's a good teacher. He'd get mm-hmm. a quality experience. And yet there's something missing. Something would be missing. You destroy the union to destroy a, a, a lot of people's livelihoods, but you'd have a cheaper end product. And I just think that way lies disaster. I know what you say make a lot of, makes a lot of sense. But again, I think of Darwin. Like, you're right. Yellow cabs were terrible. You yeah. call. They don't show up. Yeah. It's a runaround. Call me back in an hour. Yeah. And, and here is a concept that just completely improved the way we do things. Eliminated so much drinking and driving. It's yeah. it's there at our fingertips. Like I don't really uh, feel sorry for companies in which a more efficient way is invented. Yeah, yeah. And I think the problem is, and I probably set my I set my uh, trap for myself. You were talking in your last episode about traps. Well, this is, uh, this is a trap I set for myself. Yeah. The whole Darwin thing, I think, works in an education setting where with novels, for example, like, you know, with the ones that matter or the ones that, that should get taught. But I don't think you can take a biological model, a bio- biological analogy like Darwin and apply it to an economy because I think that that's that's too simple, and too many people get destroyed. Too many too many livelihoods get destroyed, and then the the response is, well, it's kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest. Well, society is not, at least in my opinion, and again, my I don't know, social democratic roots are coming out here, but society shouldn't be that. Ayn Rand kind of like whoever you know, like you know, the, the the best, the most fit wins. I think we have mm-hmm. a, a social mm-hmm. contract to to make sure that everybody. Thrives to the extent we can. Well, uh, that bell signifies that the podcast is nearly over, as does that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this is the studio here. 
I would pause it. We're just going to plow. Maybe I will pause it. I think, I mean, I'm speaking in hindsight here, but I think it was almost inevitable uh, that my generation would leave the stage with a president like Donald Trump. Um, it's our final tantrum. I think my generation, and I'm, I'm talking about baby boomers, by the way, in case mm-hmm. no one knows. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've been throwing tantrums our entire lives. I think it started, and I used to think it was, I, I didn't think it was a tantrum to begin with. We stopped, you know, in some sense, the Vietnam War. We stopped the draft, and I thought, well, maybe we're doing something well here. We're doing something good here. Uh, you know, 1970, April was Earth Day, and I thought, all right, well, maybe we're actually doing something good here. And then as time went on, I saw that there was nothing, there was nothing behind these movements except self-interest. You know, it's like we didn't, we stopped the war, and yet we dressed it up in kind of like, it's an unjust war kind of thing. We put a, put a philosophy on it, but mainly it was we didn't want to go to war. You know, now I personally believe that it was an unjust war, but, but nonetheless, I mean, I think what we did, we did for the wrong reason. We stopped it because we didn't want to go. We stopped the draft. We didn't necessarily want to go and, and be drafted into the service. And, you know, I saw that change remarkably when I was a young, just married in the mid-70s, late-70s. I saw everything begin to change, and it just became like, all right, now we're moving into this time where it's going to be all about what, what can I get? I got mine, boys. I got mine. And we, we were the ones that allowed Walmart to kind of flourish, to drive, you know, to kind of gut small towns, to gut, you know, neighborhoods, you know, uh, shopping districts. We allowed that to kind of happen. And every time, and then we had the tax revolutions, starting in California with Prop 13. We had these, we had these tax revolutions. We didn't want to pay taxes. All of a sudden, it was kind of like we were these social kind of, uh, you know, quote-unquote radicals back in the 60s. And by the 70s and 80s, we were leading these tax revolutions where, you know, all of a sudden it's kind of like we don't want to pay for anything. We had gotten all the benefits from our parents' generation, and now we don't want to pay, we don't want to pay it forward at all. And okay. so it seems okay. to me that, yeah, that, you know, our final tantrum is Donald Trump, you know, where, where it's, it's just – you don't even try to hide it anymore. It's just mm-hmm. naked self-interest. Okay. So anyway, that's my take on, on that, man. It, uh, it, you know, I'm thinking like Trump supporters probably, uh, a lot of them could care less about the uh, opinions of us, of teachers. And I wonder like, you know, is this, did he connect with angry middle America white people who lived in these, who live in these gutted small towns that you mentioned? You know what? You make a good point. I think that in some way, things happened, and and no one quite knew what they went to Walmart, but they didn't quite understand what what it cost them. They knew they got mm-hmm. they got a, a Parker or a hoodie for cheaper, yeah. but they didn't know what the cost of this thing was. And now we're experiencing the cost, and now we're angry. Now we're pissed. Now we're angry. You know, and I think that's. I think you're right. I think that's where. Yeah, I mean, I hear him talking about bringing coal back, and I'm like, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah it's, that's insane. It's, it's just shooting yourself in the foot. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But people are angry and unemployed. Yeah. Yeah, and and yet and yet our economy, so to speak, is doing well. It's doing better than ever, according to some people. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not it's not coming down to the to the people who need the money, who need the jobs. 
So, you know, I think we've, we've really kind of done it to ourselves in a way. You know, I don't blame Trump. I mean, Trump is who he always was. I mean, it was completely obvious who this guy was <laughs> before November of 2016. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't try to hide it at all. No, he didn't. And we walked into it. I mean, I know there were, you know, election issues and, and voter suppression issues and Russian issues and all. <laughs> but, you know, come on, we walked into this eyes open, eyes wide open. You know, and we, we got the man we, we deserved. And I just, you know, I just don't understand how we went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, but I think I do understand. All right. Mr. All right. Big, well, Rick Topper, I think today we got the man we deserved. Okay. Uh, did you see that segue? Did yes. Did you see yes, what I did there? Brilliant. It was well done. <laughs> Any final thoughts, my friend? No, not really. I, I'm enjoying your podcast. <laughs> I think it's uh, a whole lot of fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a, like, have, you're having a real guest on. So, so as soon as that happens, it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, Brian. This has been great. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us.